Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. We're delighted to have with us Dr. Norbert Wilson, who is Professor of Food, Economics, and Community here at Duke Divinity School. Professor Wilson's research focuses on food and particularly issues of access, choice, and waste, as well as safety and quality of food in international trade and domestic food systems. He was an economist and policy analyst in the Trade Directorate and the Agricultural Directorate of the Organization of Economic Development and Cooperation in Paris, France. Before coming to Duke, he was professor of food policy at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy. And in addition to that and much more, Professor Wilson is an ordained vocational deacon in the Episcopal Church USA. Of late, his work has been moving to explore equity in food access. And we're delighted to have him with us today to speak on that topic with his lecture titled, Food Insecurity in the United States, A Call to Action. Welcome, Professor Wilson. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And as um, a faculty member who has taught and continues to teach students in the TMC program, uh, I encourage um, those who are interested to follow it. I've met some really wonderful students, um, and that's part of the reason why I'm here. So uh, I want to encourage you all to consider that program. Today, I want to uh, share with you some thoughts, some of my research on food insecurity. Um, and in many ways, this is an effort to encourage uh, this community to take this topic seriously, um, to, to consider how you can engage in this work. Um, I will tell you, I am an economist by training, an applied or agricultural economist by training, and, and much of the work you'll see is leaning on that social scientific research. Um, at the end, I, I am going to try to incorporate some things I've been thinking about in the theological space also. I, I, while I believe that many people in this conversation or on this uh, call will be familiar with or are aware of food insecurity as a, a broad concept, I think it's important for me just to level the ground and make sure everyone's on uh, the same page uh, concerning food security. And so food security, which is, of course, the opposite of food insecurity, um, exists when food security exists uh, is when all people at all times have physical and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food that meets their dietary, uh, dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. Um, this is the broad definition of what food security looks like, the absence or when any of these conditions don't hold, and we are talking about a, a situation of food insecurity. Um, sometimes people refer to this as hunger. Um, USDA, which is the organization or the, the federal agency that documents this, um, while many others do, they're the ones who report the, the, the sort of the big, uh, big statistic on this, um, uses uh, food security as the metric. And I'll tell you a little bit about how that's calculated every year. Um, it's through the Household Food Security Survey, which is 
sent out in December of every year through the current population survey. And in this survey, they screen out individuals um, uh, for certain criteria. And then they ask a series of 10 questions for households with no children and 18 questions for households with children. And the questions center on issues around were you worried about food? Were you not able to get access to enough food? And it always comes back to this issue of because there wasn't enough money um, to purchase or acquire that food. Um, and you can see that the questions get progressively more stringent or, or, or represent a worse condition as you move further down the list of questions. And so every year this is done, um, and this has been done since the mid 1990s. Now, the measurement of food security, or the, rather the relationship of food security to a number of health outcomes has been well documented, and I'll just briefly go through some of that literature without going into any detail. Um, food insecurity has been associated with a number of negative health outcomes for children and for adults, um, and associated with a number of negative health outcomes, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and you name it. Um, it has also been associated with a number of long-term cognitive and non-cognitive skills for children affecting human capital investments and ultimately adult learning, uh, adult, er, adult earnings. And exposure to food insecurity um, preserves and even worsens economic inequality. And uh, there have been reports that show that children who grow up in households that are um, poor and are more likely to be food insecure representing sort of intergenerational uh, poverty that may occur because of early exposure. Um, and there is more evidence suggesting that um, exposure to food insecurity is something that can be addressed. And one of the ways of exploring this research and, and reporting this out to policymakers is to encourage policies that really target food insecurity to ameliorate this problem um, and to address the issue of inequality that may occur. And that's also important for healthcare professionals like many of you. Um, because of the social determinants of health that, are, um, that food insecurity is linked to, and because of the long-term health consequences that may be associated with food insecurity. Um, I'm going to show you a couple of graphs over the course of this presentation and realize that may be a little different than many of the TMC lectures, but um, here we go. So here's a representation of food insecurity um, in the US over time since about the, the early 2000s. And I realized that this graph may be a little bit small, but the idea of there was a pretty big uh, increase in food insecurity during the Great Recession. Um, the top line represents food insecurity. The bottom line represents food insecurity with very low food security. That's the more extreme form of food insecurity. Um, many years ago, uh, USDA would call this food insecurity with hunger. And you can see that the numbers bounce around, but there's a long delay in terms of when food insecurity gets back to its pre-recession uh, pre stage. Now this ends in 2019. And um, that means that there was um, the data on the pandemic wasn't available. I will go ahead and give you the upshot. A lot of people were very concerned about food insecurity in, and during the pandemic as we still are in the pandemic. Um, and many people, especially some early data, which I'll show you a little bit later, suggested that there would be a pretty significant increase, at least some of the measures that were looking at food insufficiency, which is a related measure, but not exactly the same as food insecurity. Though those measures suggest that there was going to be a great increase in food insecurity or suggested that there may be, 
when we saw the most recent food insecurity measures that came out um, early, uh, late last year, we saw that food insecurity in 2020 didn't change from the 2019 period. Um, that was a little bit of a surprise for, for some of us, for many of us. Um, and there has been arguments and there were, are going to be a number of papers that come out that suggest that many of the governmental policies that came in to support families actually helped and helped reduce food insecurity. But I will make a point that there, there was a gap that still occurred. And that's an important thing for us to consider. So in this talk today, I wanna to cover a few topics um, and I'm gonna to need to move through some of these really quickly. But I want to give you a, a sort of a, a span of some of the work that I've been doing um, with a number of different colleagues around the U.S. looking at food insecurity. Um, I wanted to talk about topics related to food security or um, disparities and talk about it in terms of regional disparities and also racial and ethnic disparities. I want to spend a little time talking about the experience of people who uh, go through food insecurity. As an economist, I mostly do um, work that's related to statistical analysis. I've been really um, blessed to work with a colleague who does qualitative work, and I've learned a lot working with her, listening to the experiences of individuals struggling with food insecurity. And I want to wrap up today's presentation by talking about hospitality. Um, it's my effort to understand what the, the Christian theological perspective may offer as a way forward in addressing issues around food insecurity. All right, let's talk about food insecurity disparities or food security disparities. Um, last year, um, some colleagues and I published a paper in the journal called Food Policy, and we were looking at um, a policy called uh, the grocery tax. In many parts of the US, um, when you purchase foods at a grocery store, the foods are exempt from the sales tax. Um, but in some states, um, I used to live in Alabama, and Alabama is one of the states that has retained a grocery tax on all products bought at the grocery store. So, um, and depending on where you are in the state, that tax can be as high as 9%. Um, so we were interested in understanding whether or not the grocery tax had any effect or was at least related to food insecurity in states. And part of that reason is because um, many people in the state, or at least uh, some activist groups rather, were interested in this issue and were concerned that grocery taxes increase food insecurity. And so here's a map of states that are uh, with higher rates of food insecurity, which are the darker colors, and the circles represent states that have a grocery tax. The triangle represents states that had a grocery tax, but then eliminated over time. And this is a map from Feeding America, which is the largest food um, uh, food charity organization in the United States um, and work with um, different colleagues. They've created this map, the mill gap, which predicts food insecurity at the county level. And I want you to see that the greater rates of food insecurity occur um, in the uh, region, uh, in the Southern region and, and up of Appalachia. And so when we see these two maps together, I wanna to be careful not to suggest causality, but we do see at least some correlation of where food insecurity rates are higher and also where grocery taxes are also higher. Uh, this is just a representation of what the grocery tax looks like at the, at the, on the percentage rate. And we can see this is at the state level. This is not including all of the local taxes that may also exist. That states like um, Alabama and Kansas and Mississippi um, have higher rates of food, and, uh, higher rates of grocery taxes. Um, some of the states also have a tax credit, um, but um, that tax credit only occurs when um, an individual files for taxes and isn't directly related to the expenditures on food. 
I am not going to go through any of the statistical analysis. I'll just give you the upshot of what we found. And the evidence suggests that a 1% increase in the grocery tax is associated with an increase in food insecurity of the household, the prevalence of food insecurity of the household by 0.84%. And now this is just for low-income households, households earning less than $30,000. And so if we look at the average tax rate for those states that have um, a grocery tax or states or other local um, um, jurisdictions that have the grocery tax, um, that rate is 4.2%, suggesting about 3.3% of uh, prevalence of food insecurity because of the grocery tax, or at least associated with the grocery tax. I'm careful of talking about causal relationships. Um, we, we did very, uh, we did try to um, see if we could tease out a causal relationship, but we were, were careful about making that statement. We also found that there was a one uh, that the SNAP policy and SNAP is the Supplemental Assistance Nutrition Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which used to be called the Food SNAP Program. That a one dollar increase in SNAP benefits actually reduces the probability of being a household being food insecure. It's important to note that the uh, SNAP program doesn't pay for the grocery tax. So for individuals who are using SNAP benefits to purchase their foods are not paying the grocery tax um, when they use their SNAP benefits. But SNAP benefits typically end within or are expended within the first uh, three weeks of the month. So there are some periods of time in the, in the course of a month that a family may be paying for that grocery tax. So uh, households that are already struggling and um, even if they benefit from this uh, SNAP program aren't able to reap the full benefits when they're paying uh, grocery taxes um, in the months or in the period of the month when their SNAP benefits have been eliminated. And so all of this paper does do is suggest that there are differences in food insecurity by regions of the U.S. There's been some other work by researchers at the U U.S. Department of Agriculture's Economic Research Service that also shows that price differential uh, price differentials of food across the U.S. also are associated with higher rates of food insecurity. Um, throughout the U.S. So again, suggesting disparities by region. Now, it is important to understand that all households aren't the same, not just in terms of region, but also in terms of race and ethnicity when it comes to food insecurity. Again, forgive the small slide, um, but I hope you are able to see a distinction between the blue and orange line at the top and the other colors at the bottom. The orange and blue lines represent food insecure households that are African-American or Black households or, and also Hispanic households. Um, and the lower lines represent the national average, um, white and um, other households that are not Hispanic. And we see a persistence in food insecurity over time and by racial uh, differences in households. As I mentioned earlier, there was a great deal of concern about food insecurity um, over time, particularly over the pandemic. And what this graph comes from is uh, data from the, um, uh, the Pulse survey that was run or that's been running during the pandemic. And instead of looking at food security, which is a fuller, a larger survey module, they were looking at food um, sufficiency and the predictions, or at least the early estimates from the summer of 2020 was that food insecurity was going to increase, but more importantly, maybe, was that there was going to be even greater disparity in food insecurity by racial and ethnic households. And so this is the result from the 2020 um, food security um, results. Again, remember that household food security did not change from 2020 
uh, from the 2019 results. So the pandemic on uh, didn't seem to have an effect on food insecurity by households um, during the pandemic. However, we did see an increase in food insecurity disparities where white households had a food insecurity rate of only 7.1%, but black households were um, food insecure at 21.7% of black households were food insecure and 17.2% of Hispanic households were food insecure during the pandemic year. So suggesting that racial disparities in food insecurity um, is actually perennially high and worsened during the pandemic, something similar to what we saw during the Great Recession, which is gonna to lead to um, this, uh, this work that I published with my colleagues um, a couple of years back, looking at the disparity of food insecurity. It had been thought that there were differences in food insecurity by, uh, by racial groups and some of the raw data that had suggested this, um, my colleague Craig Gunnarsson has published uh, work um, some years back looking at Native American households and showing that there were um, Native American households were experiencing food insecurity at a, a much greater rate than other households. Um, but there hadn't been, at least to our knowledge, any work that looked at the disparities of food insecurity by um, race and ethnicity. Um, and we were particularly interested in what happened during the Great Recession. And so what we did um, is that we um, used um, models to evaluate the incidence of food insecurity and also the severity. By instance, we're talking about whether or not a household is food insecure. And severity, we're talking about the extent that the household is food insecure. And we looked at it um, for race and, race and ethnic um, differences by household and also immigrant status, immigrant versus non-immigrant households. And we're particularly interested in the Great Recession back in 2007 to 2009. And we were interested in trying to understand or control for factors that might make a household move more food insecure, such as the gender of the head of the household, income, the number of children, the level of education of the head of household. We also were interested in understanding and controlling for the role that SNAP, the, the food stamp program played in influencing food security. We use a method, um, which I won't go into much detail, but suffice it to say, uh, we use the Oaxaca blinder decomposition method, which has been used frequently um, and has been used for a number of years to look at racial disparities, especially in wages and also gender disparities in wages. So here's a, a, a graph. The top graph represents the instance of food insecurity disparities, looking at black versus white households, Hispanic versus white households, and immigrant versus non-immigrant. And these positive signs represent um, greater disparities or greater prevalence of food insecurity by these household types for black versus white households, um, et cetera. And the bottom graph represents the disparity in terms of the severity. So for those households that are food insecure, um, we see that black households had a higher um, severity of food insecurity than their white counterparts, but for Hispanic, and immigrant households, we don't see that. We actually see a reversal of that relationship. Without, again, going into details of, of looking at the difference, what we were able to do is use um, um, the statistical method that I described earlier to look at the difference. And we also were able to control for SNAP, um, the fact that SNAP is endogenously related. Households that are more likely to be food insecure are also more likely to participate in the SNAP program. And similar to the paper I showed you about grocery taxes, we try to control for that um, factor. And so what we see is that even with SNAP, the disparities still persist. So we were interested in this instance of uh, 
disparities um, and of severity by uh, racial and ethnic households and also um, uh, immigrant versus non-immigrant households. And we control for those different factors that might lead some households to be more food insecure. And even when we control for those, those differences or those household characteristics, we saw that there was a persistent and unexplained variation in food insecurity between groups. And we also found that SNAP did little to reduce the difference um, between these groups, although we saw evidence that SNAP did lower the prevalence of food insecurity overall. So SNAP does, does what it's supposed to do by lowering food insecurity across households, but what it isn't doing, at least from our estimates, is reducing the, the disparities. Um, I'm not gonna present some uh, results from our current study that my colleagues and I are doing um, and this is a paper that's under revised and resubmitted in a journal. And what we do is estimate um, models to look at what would happen if we try to uh, change aspects of the SNAP program to reduce that disparity. We looked at eligibility requirements. We looked at um, um, uptake, whether or not a household participates in the SNAP program once they're eligible. And we also looked at the generosity of the program, how much money is delivered. And what we were able to find is that by making adjustments in eligibility and um, uptake, we could actually see improvements or reductions in the disparity of, of food insecurity by household types. Um, while it doesn't perfectly solve the problem, we saw there were places where there could be some improvements. So I hope that paper is able to um, come out um, someday in the near future. I think this is particularly interesting in the current moment because um, last summer, at the end of the summer, the Biden administration actually changed the way SNAP benefits are determined in terms of the uh, dollar amount, the generosity, to actually encourage or increase the amount of funding that would go to SNAP recipients. And it's going to be very important to see whether or not that increase in generosity has any influence on um, the um, the um, outcomes in terms of disparities of, of food insecurity by household types. So there's more to come in that space. Our effort was uh, uh, to look at disparities in food insecurity and we didn't take into account why that may occur. We were trying to control for these different household characteristics, but there's a, maybe a deeper problem that that is important to look at. And there was a paper published earlier and there've been other people who've worked in this space thinking about how race and racial inequality may influence the well-being of individuals who participate in these programs and whether or not they uh, take these programs. Um, I have a colleague here, uh, Carolyn Barnes, who's worked in some of, this, uh, in some of these areas. And so, um, and the paper by Burke and uh, some of his colleagues, he, he wrote, excuse me, they wrote low SES and food access are important factors to consider when discussing food insecurity among Americans, among African-Americans. But there is also a need to understand why disparities exist in the first place. That is, what is the role of racial discrimination in determining an individual's ability to become economically secure and have access to healthier food environments? And so while there have been many authors who've looked at distal measures of experience of racism and they show some relationship to food insecurity, there's a need to really dig in deeper to understand what role does race and racism play in racialized experiences uh, with the food system, labor markets, and also the healthcare systems and how that might influence or shape food security. 
So we've talked about disparities of food insecurity by region and race and ethnicity. Let's now focus on um, the experiences of people who are food insecure. As I mentioned earlier, as an economist, we typically don't do work in the space of uh, addressing food insecurity through um, qualitative methods, interviewing people. Uh, but I've discovered that it's an important way for us to understand it's a different type of uh, knowing and um, experiencing um, those interviews have really shaped how I understand the work that I've been doing. And I'm grateful for the participants who've shared their experiences. And um, I hope to do more of this work and, and use this as a way to um, allow their voices to be heard, uh, not just amongst academics, but also outside of the academy. So my colleague, Sarah Fulta, is the one who helped me um, access sort of qualitative methods. Um, and uh, this is a paper that we published looking at the idea of scarcity um, how, and how that may influence um, food security, um, in particular, food choice. So there has been a literature um, um, led by our researchers, Elder Shafir, who's a psychologist, and um, Sindhu Malayathan, who is an economist, thinking about this idea of scarcity. And broadly speaking, it's this idea that when people experience scarcity, it could be financial scarcity, it could also um, represent scarcity of access to time. Um, and as many of us are academics, we experience time scarcity a lot. Um, and then also scarcity of even relationships. And the argument is that when we experience scarcity, we focus on that scarcity, that thing that's scarce, and we try to resolve that problem. But other important decisions are left outside of this tunnel, if you will, when we, when we tunnel on that um, item of, of scarcity. And because of that, those decisions are overlooked and we might, if you will, make mistakes. And so we were interested to understand when individuals experience financial scarcity, does that influence their food choice? And, and that was the core of what we were doing. And we used qualitative methods um, with in-depth interviews to understand the experience of financial scarcity um, and whether that leads to tunneling and this idea of what's called the bandwidth tax, where you're not able to keep up with other decisions because you're so focused on this core problem in front of you and whether or not this influences food choice. Um, and part of the reason is that we were interested in understanding this question is when you look at the data from um, a big data source like NHANES, um, which is uh, one of the important data sets that talks about food choice, um, it uses 24-hour recalls and it's associated with a number of other health outcomes. Um, there is evidence to suggest that individuals from lower income households have lower quality diets relative to higher income households using something like the healthy eating index. Now, let's be clear, all Americans um, fall short of attaining um, a high uh, quality nutritional diet according to the Healthy Eating Index. We, uh, as a nation, failed to meet the dietary guidelines for Americans, but uh, households uh, from, low uh, from low income households, individuals from low income households particularly struggle, even participants um, who have uh, SNAP benefits. So what we did was something um, that we were really interested in doing to understand how people are making food choice is that we used a participant-driven photo elicitation. We actually recruited participants to go around and take photographs of their food acquisition activities over the course of a month. So if they went grocery shopping, if they went to a food pantry, if they went to other places where they were able to get meals, like congregate eating settings, we wanted them to take photos um, to document how um, and what they were selecting for food. 
Um, and we use those to prompt um, and to um, encourage uh, discussion in the interviews. And here's just a, a photograph of one of our participants um, and this data was collected back in 2019 before the pandemic. And you can see some of the things that this individual um, selected. And so one of the things that we learned from uh, these interviews is that uh, our participants did a number of many um, really uh, unique uh, shopping behaviors to, in, to help them make ends meet. Um, using multiple stores, menu planning, uh, spending a great deal of time uh, chasing sales, looking for discounts, using coupons, using uh, cell phone technology, uh, following apps, you name it. And these intricate um, uh, methods were also really time consuming. And so we found that, that many of our participants actually, because of the sort of requirements of taking the photographs, actually were underemployed or unemployed. And so we discovered that while they may have had financial scarcity, they also had a lot of um, uh, sort of uh, time where they could spend um, working on making these food choices. And so one of our participants we found um, reported how he um, navigated uh, food choices. And so he talked about how he plans menus. He has this really elaborate method of identifying foods that he needs. And he's very, very careful about how he buys food for himself, his wife, and his, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, the others in his household. He says that he goes to three different grocery stores in the course of a week to see which products are cheaper. Um, we also interviewed another, um, another person who talked about making sure to hit grocery stores on certain days when the sales were released. And he said something that was really important for us. And this was a person who had a full-time job at one point, but was working less than full-time now. And so he says, when I was working full-time, I never really paid attention. But certainly when you know you don't have the money, I never had to do this before, talking about this elaborate method of acquiring food. Uh, then I learned to do everything, apps, flyers, and he went through a number of other activities that he did um, to acquire food. So now it's time of the month. This is another participant. I only get $192 uh, for food stamps. Um, and at this point, this person is saying that the money is getting lower in terms of their SNAP benefits. And they were very careful about noticing what foods they were purchasing and why they purchased them um, because of the cost. And, and they were talking about buying frozen meals, uh, banquet meals, um, because I needed food, my food stamps are running out and I'm trying to stretch it. In talking to these different participants, we saw that they use multiple activities, including using food pantries, the charitable food sector, to support their families and their own food needs. So the themes that we saw was that um, participants use intricate, uh, multifaceted, um, extreme systems, if you will, to design and stretch scarce financial resources. Um, there was another major theme of food choice and a preference, which I didn't really talk about. Um, they considered nutrition, but it wasn't uh, a top priority. It was about cost for the most part. This extreme focus suggested tunneling, but we didn't see any example of this bandwidth tax, in part because of their ability to spend the time to make the choices we believe. Um, and what we found that, that these uh, participants were really concerned about um, the decisions they made with food, and they also um, didn't report um, 
uh, needing to make uh, trade-offs with other important areas of their lives in terms of, uh, because of their ability to spend the time doing that work. But this complex system of acquiring food, and this work was done in the Boston area, and they were able to do this because of the sort of many different places and ways that they were able to acquire food um, from food pantries, going to different grocery stores, using public transportation, uh, depending on friends that drive them to the store. And remember, this was before the pandemic. And this raises real questions about what did individuals do during the pandemic? Um, and um, I, I just wanna make a point um, and I won't go into much detail because we're near our, 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 the time and I wanna uh, make sure I talk a little bit about some of the ways of thinking about this. My colleague, Sarah Fultz and I did some research where we asked people about how they used um, something called micro pantries. If you've seen little free pantries, um, they are these little, um, little free libraries. There are these boxes by people's homes or churches where people are able to um, put food in and individuals are able to take food out. And we interviewed individuals. And one of the things that I will say as uh, a sort of a big take home from that um, interview process is that we learned that individuals, even though the national statistics suggested that food insecurity rates didn't change from 2020 um, over from 2019, we discovered that families were struggling, that they were really worried during the pandemic, especially in the early part of the pandemic, and they weren't sure. And while these little free pantries were never going to solve the food insecurity challenge, and anyone in the charitable food sector, or most people, I would argue, who are in the charitable food sector know that they're never going to solve food insecurity through charity, they were very concerned and very grateful for what these little pantries were able to provide in ways that the larger pantries couldn't because of shutdowns during the pandemic, um, because of the concerns of, of spreading the virus. Even though I have a number of slides, I'm going to um, skip to the last few slides. Um, and this is just one of the places where this little free pantry, you can see it in the image here on the far right, um, where um, people were providing and exchanging food. Um, I'm seeming to have a little difficulty. I'm going to skip through the quotes here. And I just want to, um, I can go back if people are interested in learning more about um, that study. I just want to talk about one last thing, and it's this idea of hospitality. Uh, now that I'm in the Divinity School, um, I've, I've been really encouraged and um, to think about what does theology or um, theological ethics mean for us in addressing these concerns. I'm grateful um, to be able to engage um, really amazing colleagues in, in the Divinity School um, about these topics. And, and there are a number of my colleagues who are particularly interested in food and, and the environment, and so I'm grateful for them. Um, and one of the things that I've been thinking about is a challenge that I've discovered um, that's showing up in the literature. There are a number of uh, researchers and actually even community activists that are concerned about the heavy reliance on charity to address issues of food insecurity. Some have even um, argued that we should move away from charity um, to, to fight for justice and providing people access to food. And I appreciate these concerns. And, and there have been some uh, books that have been written on this particular topic and questioned the work of some of those individuals in the charitable food sector in a way they address food insecurity and suggesting that they're focusing too much on charity and not enough on justice. 
And I think the charitable food sector should really pay attention to these, uh, these concerns. But one of the things that I appreciate about the idea of charity is that it's deeply rooted in caritas and this notion of care or love for the other. I've participated in food pantries. I've been on boards at uh, the board of a food uh, bank before. And so I have a sort of relationship with a number of people who work in this space. And, um, and I, I've got to admit that maybe my experience or interactions is shaping the way I'm thinking about this issue. But one of the things I know is that many of those individuals are deeply concerned about their neighbors. Um, they're acting out of a, a deep desire to love their neighbor, um, to serve God. Um, and to, in many ways, love God. And it's at that concern that they are doing the work that they do. Now, is there a space to push, to encourage greater activities to work towards justice? I believe so. And the, one of the ways that I think we can begin to think about this is using the idea of hospitality. Now, by hospitality, I'm not talking about when you're invited over to a dinner party and someone welcomes you in a warm way, but rather this deep, the radical notion of extending oneself to the other to meet a deep need. Uh, I've been reading several books in this space, and one um, is uh, Letty Russell. And I, I learned about this book through um, interactions um, with my colleague Ellen Davis in the Divinity School. And R Russell's text talks about this notion of just hospitality. And it's described as the practice of God's welcome by reaching out across difference to participate in God's actions of bringing justice and healing in our world of crisis and fear of the ones that we call other. Paul, uh, Christine Paul, also talks about the other in a particular way, because sometimes when we talk about hospitality, it could be about the stranger, the foreigner, the person who is a refugee. But she makes a point about the other as someone who is outside of the economic systems, people experiencing poverty. So we can begin to see the other, the person in need, the person who we should extend hospitality as someone who's struggling with financial difficulties. She goes on to talk about these sort of three phases or three ways we can look at um, uh, hospitality. And in many ways, Paul is talking about this in the context of meeting a direct need, providing food, providing shelter for someone in need. And so she talks about this in terms of provision, protection, and connection. And one of the ways that I want to use this notion of hospitality is to argue, is there a way of thinking about these even in the policy space? Can we talk about how we can adjust policies from a hospitality construction to talk about the way we provide support through programs like SNAP? Are there ways of expanding those programs to address the inequalities that I've mentioned before? Is there a way of providing protection, making sure that all people who are in need are able to access these programs or to create opportunities that allow for economic opportunities where those programs aren't even needed. But one thing that the policy sometimes fails on is connection. How do we help individuals understand and appreciate the challenges and experiences of people facing food insecurity or financial uncertainty? 
And it's that connection that I think that policy often fails to understand or appreciate or deal with. I'll end by saying I had this really unique opportunity to work with a group called Witnesses to Hunger. Um, my colleague, uh, Marianne, uh, I'm forgetting her last name right now, Chilton, excuse me, um, helped start this group out of Philadelphia. And um, she is amazing and has worked with amazing individuals who have experienced food insecurity or experiencing food insecurity. And these are individuals who have advocated locally and nationally to address issues of food insecurity. And so they're using this idea of connection to help facilitate policies to address food insecurity and larger economic insecurity. I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to share uh, the work I've been doing and hope to do. And I look forward to answering any questions. I should note that I've had a number of colleagues who've helped me uh, develop this work. And I'm like, super excited to share some of our um, uh, findings and appreciate my colleagues for uh, how much they've taught me um, over the years. So I thank you and I look forward to your questions. All right. Uh, sorry, guys, it took me a second. To, uh, it was not letting me unmute myself. Finally, it did. Thank you, Professor Wilson. Um, folks, if you have questions, uh, go ahead and, and if you would, using that reactions button at the bottom right of your, your Zoom screen, raise your hand and I'll, I'll be happy to call on as many as we can. Um, as we're waiting, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I wanna ask a question Norbert, a kind of technical question, sort of technical, I guess, but um, when you talked about the your study where folks experienced scarcity of food, but had time to really work at figuring out how to get food with their limited resources, um, it, rem it reminded me of the problem of um, particularly single moms who need childcare, and that it seems like the the food insecurity for many folks is related to being underemployed or unemployed and therefore not having sufficient income to have access to the food they need. And yet, if they get, if they become employed, they're not going to have the margin of time, most likely. It's kind of like when a moms are underemployed, so they can't afford childcare, but then you get employment, there's like a gap where it's hard to how you need childcare with while you're you're employed. So I'm just kind of curious, um, is that is that a dynamic people have described of of or and does the SNAP program allow for people to work for a while and have an income without without immediately cutting their assistance? Great a set of questions. And uh, you you're pointing out um a sort of a um, a gap in the paper that I presented. And because we were asking people to take photos, not, so I'm gonna answer your question, but I'll just explain why we didn't have individuals like that in our sample. Um, we, we discovered that we had a huge dropout rate. We would have people who were eligible, they would, they would start the study, but they weren't able to complete it. And we wondered, we wondered if it was because of individuals who were trying to take care of their family, 
And the last thing they needed to do was start taking pictures uh, whenever we were asking them to. And so there has been a number of, of individuals who've talked about exactly this issue of people who are trying to work, um, childcare isn't sufficient, and it's just hard to juggle all of these responsibilities. And so, so I do believe there is a, a real problem there. And again, I, I think uh, uh, we have colleagues here at Duke's, uh, excuse me, at Duke who were working in that space. Um, um, and I, I would further argue that, yes, this is a real problem. The SNAP program um, for families with children, um, you don't have to work, but some of those work requirements shift. You do have to work if you do not have children or if you're below a certain age. So there can be these real challenges of when do you work um, and whether or not you work and you gain access to those benefits. And, and the bottom line is, uh, work requirements can be really problematic for folks. And that's some of what, what the other study I was showing with uh, my colleagues at Syracuse is that when you adjust for um, who's able to participate and that's in taking into consideration work requirements, um, you might actually see uh, reductions in disparities of food insecurity if, if some of these requirements, and while we don't explicitly look at work requirements, we looked at this idea of eligibility and participation and, and work requirements is one of the things, are, are one of the things that can actually restrict someone's participation. So in short, there needs to be, or there is a real evidence to suggest that um, restricting people by these requirements can have negative influences. And it is also important to understand that when people, um, when families are struggling with meeting all of their concerns, we can see greater challenges with acquiring food. Um, and I know I saw there was a quick chat come up about um, a recent book, um, a couple of recent books, and there's a, a book on uh, how the other half eats. I haven't had a chance to, to look at it, but I, I think it's an important place uh, to consider. And I can see some of our colleagues are also pointing out some of the other concerns that people have raised in this particular uh, space. Thank you. Any, are there, is there anyone who would like to put a question to Professor Wilson? I do see there's a, a comment um, in the chat about um, your asking, I guess, your thoughts on, uh, well, actually, before we get to that, let's hear from Jessica Eustace. Jessica, do you mind unmuting? And you can turn on your camera as well if, you, if you're uh, able. Mute. There you go. We hear you now, at least. All right, so um, my question is related to, I know that um, sometimes employers offer their part-time or low-wage employees SNAP benefits. I mean, information about how to get SNAP benefits, almost as if it were a part of the employer's um, benefit program. And so my question is, how does that relate to the idea of uh, hospitality as a Christian value? And is there a way that those two ideas can be joined together um, to benefit society as a whole? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll mention two books that uh, sort of touch on this topic either directly or sort of um, uh, tangentially. Um, one is Feeding the Crisis um, uh, by Maggie Dickinson. She is 
an anthropologist, but was really interested initially in labor issues. Um, but that led her um, looking at individuals who needed SNAP benefits and saw how work requirements and participation in the labor force was in, uh, sort of shaping whether or not or how people ended up participating. And while she doesn't, I don't remember her specifically talking about the example that you're talking about, she does make this argument that um, employers uh, may pay um, employees less because of recognition that they're eligible for SNAP benefits. Now, that's a that's a complicated story. I don't want to say that that it is the final story on that, but I'm just saying this is part of the argument that she makes. Um, Andy Fisher, um, uh, his book is called Big Hunger. It also talks about this and, and sort of names companies that um, pay their workers um, a wage such that they're still eligible for SNAP, encourages them to participate in SNAP, and does a lot of charity work, if you will, um, to, to sort of address food insecurity. And so his argument would be, well, if you just paid folks more, you wouldn't have to encourage that. Again, I'm, I'm reporting what's in the books. Um, I encourage you all, if you're interested in those books, to look those up. I, I guess the idea of what does it mean for an employer to engage their employees and to pay them a wage that they're able to uh, meet their, their living needs is an important question. Um, and one of the ways that that also shows up, maybe the wage is fine, I'm not questioning that, but what sometimes ends up happening is also how many hours you're able to work and adjusting the hours that leads to um, people having a variable income, therefore needing to depend on other supports to provide for their family. And there are a number of folks who've been reporting and, and looking at that as, as a real challenge. So I think this idea of hospitality is one that may be important for us to think about what does it mean in our relationship between employer and employees. Um, and that's a big conversation about what is a livable wage. Um, and and I, I think other people need to address that. I mean, I'm interested in that, but I think it's a really important question for us to, to consider. Yes, thank, thank, thank you, you for that question. question. Let's, we've got three other questions pending here. Let's see if we can somehow get through those. Okay. Uh, we'll start with Treasurer Shepard. Hi, um, so I had a quick question. I currently work for LA County's Development Authority in California. Um, so I'm more focused on uh, community economic and housing development. However, food always comes as a part of that, um, especially when working with like section eight. And so um, to that point, as a section eight representative, when I did do that a few years back, we would always have to provide those resources for SNAP, um, point them in that direction, and, and it was very difficult to kind of witness um, mm -hmm. as a Christian to see like they they're working. Yes, they're try they're trying to figure out should they quit the job because now they don't have enough. Like there were so many uh, unfortunate uh, decisions that they would have to make. My question is in Los Angeles specifically and other um, metropolises, there are so many, especially black and brown communities, there are so many churches. It's like there's a liquor store, there's a food swamp or desert, and then there is a house of faith or something. And so I always wondered, what would it look like? And um, what would you suggest as far as maybe having farmers markets or even um, building food, you know, grocery stores on some of these properties that have vacant lots or extra space. What if we made those the centers and created food access for healthy food there? All right, good, good question, question Shipper. Um, and I can answer that really quickly because there, uh, there are folks who are working in this space. Um, 
uh, a, a fellow named uh, Reverend, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown, who's out of Baltimore, uh, leads up the Black Church Food Security Network. Um, and you can find lots of examples of what he's doing in using uh, or working with Black churches. He's a pastor um, and trying to do some of the things that you're describing. And so there are examples out there and outside of the church. Oh, great. Thank you, Caitlin, for putting that in the chat. Um, he's, he's one, he's just a great person. He's just a, a super wonderful person. Um, but two, I think there are some examples out there that can be built upon. And he's not the only person in that space, but he's the one that I know of immediately. So I hope that's helpful. And I'll just mention a few others have, have had helpful chats with some pointing to some resources here in, locally in, in North Carolina for those who are interested in some of the efforts being taken to uh, address food insecurity. Let's go to Sarah Wilmoth. Um, yeah, so I'm from a very rural place, um, and there's a lot of lack of transportation, um, and that is a huge issue. And so I was wondering if you looked at that in any of your research and if that had any um, effect on what you found. Really good question. Thank you so much. Um, I Personally, I have not worked on that. I know there are researchers who work in the space of sort of geographic distance um, and particularly when it, it, they, a lot of that work, I think, has been focused on rural settings, but I mean, excuse me, urban settings, but there are people who are interested in the rural aspects of it. I will say from having worked in Alabama and um, knowing the rurality of the state and understanding how people were dependent on um, others to help them access food, I believe this is a real challenge. Um, and so I think there's some important work there. That's not been a, a space that I've looked at, but at least anecdotally, I have seen it as a real challenge, in particular um, for elder folks who may not have a car or are no longer able to drive, really spending even extra money just to have someone pay, to pay someone to get them to the grocery store. Um, and, and I think there's some ways that uh, faith communities can support one another. And I've seen that in faith communities. I've seen it in my own family where that's been the case. Uh, so thank you for the question. And I, I think there's some really important work to be done in that space. Great, thank you. Sarah, uh, I think we got time just for one more question from June Weston. Uh, my question is related to the last two questions. When we think of the, the big three, we think of housing, food, and transportation. And I was going to ask if you cross paths a lot with Matthew Desmond, who's done a lot of work with housing insecurity. And do you, is, is there overlap? Do you see lots of court correlation in, in, in that? And are you familiar with Matthew Desmond? In, in his work around housing insecurity. Thank you, Ms. West. Um, I am, I, I don't personally know him. Um, he is such a rock star and I've read his book and wanted to uh, uh, study with him because he is just amazing. And uh, the book Evicted uh, really shaped how I thought about uh, some of the work that I've been doing and really helped me to understand the importance of spending time and being in community with folks who are struggling with these issues. And so, so I agree. And actually, even in his book, he really does touch on food insecurity a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. And so housing security is critical. Um, and I remember having a conversation, I'll be quick, and I really would love to answer Anne's question, um, uh, but, I, uh, but I will say really quickly, I remember working with a or engaging a pastor when I lived in Alabama, and he talked about individuals who had been incarcerated. And when they uh, came out, he said, you know, we can get people access to food. The challenge that we keep running into is um, 
how do we help them uh, maintain housing? And that's been a real challenge. And so, but once your housing is challenged, and this comes through in some of the interviews I've done, food security becomes a challenge. So it's it's sort of both and. It's hard to get around these these issues. So thank you for that question, and I, I really appreciate. It. Yes, thank you all. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your attention, your uh, your questions, your your chats, um, and particularly thank you to Professor Norbert Wilson for this ter terrific talk. Um, we will wish you all a good day and a good weekend, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Take care.